I wouldn't have been ready for it at the time. And I'm a firm believer that you get given things when you are ready for them. And so now when things don't work out, I don't care. I mean, I, you know, I think, well, how can we improve and how can we be better? But, and I'll always work, I'll do the best that I can to, for the best result at the time. But things don't work out, there's usually a reason for it. Hello and welcome to Modern Intuition Podcast with your host, Olivia Scott. In this podcast, we talk all things intuition, spirituality, manifestation, and the road to uncovering soul purpose. I will be chatting with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, business owners, and industry experts to hear their road to creating success and how intuition has played into that journey. We uncover practical tools and inspiration to use in our own modern day lives to create our own version of happy, high vibration living in alignment with our true authentic self. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 7 of Modern Intuition Podcast. I'm really excited to have the beautiful and inspiring Amy Fraser from OK Real on today's podcast. But before we dive into the episode for today, I just wanted to share that last week I held a workshop at Breathe Space in Parnell in Auckland, New Zealand, and the workshop event was called A Modern Woman's Guide to Intuition, Manifestation, and Higher Self. The evening was really amazing, and To be honest, I always know that the people who come to learn this content and to listen to this content are usually pretty in tune or aligned with what they want or where they're going or what intuition and manifestation feels like, but that they have got a whole lot of questions and they just want to kind of dive in fully to really understand and grasp the concept on an even deeper level, which is what happened in I was at the end of the night blown away with how in sync everyone that came to the event really was and the most powerful part of the evening was actually hearing everyone's stories and learning from each other's insights and then relaying all that back to the information that we were learning in the workshop and it was just so inspiring for me to see these beautiful women coming and sharing so openly and vulnerably and being so open to learning and taking on board the information and completely embodying what we were talking about, which is just the most rewarding thing that I could have experienced with hosting that workshop. Um, The content was so exciting and I love sharing about this stuff. Um, I have been on about, I started learning and researching this stuff when I was about 16 or 17 years old so it's I've had a um about 11 years of really diving into the world of energy work and learning how to channel and learning how to tap into intuition and how to actually create big manifestations and actually a story I shared on the night of the workshop was the first time I read The Secret which was when I was in high school I think I was about 15 And um, that youthful naivety you have when you're that age of, oh, yeah, this seems right. I'm just going to completely believe and have faith and trust that everything that I 
do in this manifestation process is 100% going to work. So what I did was I thought, what is the biggest and most exciting thing that I could possibly manifest? (laughs) And at that time, I was uh, listening to a lot of punk music, and I was very much in love with the band Fall Out Boy, and specifically the lead singer of the band Fall Out Boy. I think his name was or is Pete Wentz. And so my manifestation the biggest thing that I could think of at 15 years old was I want to meet the lead singer of my favorite band, Fall Out Boy. I want to meet Fall Out Boy in in real life. So following the footsteps of what they taught in that book, The Secret, I did my vision board. I woke up every morning and visualized shaking hands with Pete Wentz and I visualized what it would feel like to uh, be around them and what the environment and I literally remember what would it feel like to shake their hands like how does their skin feel and and knowing that Pete Wentz was short I visualized where he would come up to um, when I stood next to him and things like that but it's so funny because looking back I and, and knowing what I know now I'm like gosh Knowing what I know now, I probably wouldn't have so wholeheartedly given my belief up to that manifestation practice because now I know there's actually a little bit more to it. But the reason it worked back then was because I was, I didn't really have many limiting beliefs holding me back. I didn't really have many subconscious blocks holding me back. I was just so fully embodied in who I was. And lo and behold, I uh, came across a competition in a magazine where um, when Fall Out Boy was coming over to New Zealand for a concert, they were giving a reader an opportunity to win a meet and greet competition. So I thought, right, this is my opportunity. Here we go. I'm applying for it. I sent the magazine a picture of me with my vision board and how much I love them and like a three-page letter on why I think I should win when I think they they had like a 250 words or less description. But I just went went overboard and applied and um, continued to visualize winning it and all of that stuff. And lo and behold, I had the phone call to say that I had won the competition. I didn't just win the competition. I got, I got to take a couple of friends with me, and we got this really uh, amazing night out. And I got to meet Fallout Boy, and I got to shake hands with Pete Wentz. So that journey at such a young age really went on to shape and dictate my relationship to the process of manifestation. And I went on a journey. I guess seeing how that experience had been so real for me and so mind-blowingly um, accurate that I, I lived and breathed the secret for a couple of years. And it wasn't until I hit a bit of a rock bottom at 17 and um, my parents separated and I um, I was very depressed and I had a, a drug problem and lots of different things. What I realized over that time and for the years following was that you might be able to manifest things using a certain uh, method or practice, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to make you happy. And what I began to then learn was the importance of our own intuitive system and authenticity and what self-worth really is, because these 
these topics don't come into the process of manifestation and this, the, these proce- these topics don't come into what they teach in the secret. So I realized that the topic manifestation is only a side effect of being fully trusting and and deserving and worthy of whatever it is that you're wanting to create. But what's 10 times more important is who we really are at the core. So over the process of the last 10, 11, 12 years, I have really dove into this and I used the manifestation process to create my dream company about seven or eight years ago. And then within the framework of my company, I went on the journey of learning how do you manifest from a place that's actually going to make you happy? But firstly, how do you figure out who you really are and how do you return to that place of realness and authenticity and truth whilst manifesting? Because what I find and what I teach in this workshop is that a lot of our, a lot of the time our manifestations are built on a, a place of wanting to create something from actually from a place of fear or ego rather than a place of truth or authenticity and what I find is that the manifestations that are called in from a place of fear or ego or outside validation or external validation are the manifestations that actually don't bring us the deep happiness that we're seeking. So over the last 10 years or so I've been on journeys to India and Bali and reading a probably about a hundred different books and texts and listening to different teachings and philosophies and uh, to come to a place now where I do feel like I understand and embody the the real important aspects of creating from a sense of truth and purpose and bringing into our life what we really need which and what we need and what we want, which in aligning those two things is part of uh, what I think needs to be taught a lot more in uh, around the topic of manifestation. Because what's the point of bringing things into our physical life or a physical environment if it's actually not going to make us happy long term? What's going to make us the most happiest long term is expressing ourselves from a place of truth and authenticity and purpose and who we are here to really be. Uh, And I think that an important part of this place is actually having a greater purpose beyond ourselves, whether that's giving back to the community or having a element of our life that allows us to contribute to a greater whole than than only our own individual existence but hey these are all things that we go into into this workshop so what I wanted to share is that I do have one more coming up this year on the 6th of December 6.30 to 8.30 in Parnell in Auckland but if you are not in Auckland or New Zealand and you're listening to this podcast I'm actually creating a online learning course uh, called Modern Intuition Manifestation and Higher Self where we talk about all of this but it's actually quite interactive in the sense where there are plenty of journaling prompts and ways for us to go deeper through uh, deep meditations uh, allowing us to go into our subconscious mind and and clear some things that uh, might be stopping us from actually calling in manifestations from a place of self-worth because what I often see and find is that 
when we've got beliefs that we aren't actually deserving of something, that's what blocks us from believing we can call it in, but it's usually sometimes on quite a subtle level. And what we also talk about in the workshop is creating intuition, enhancing our intuitive system so that we actually can provide the right answers for ourselves without having to seek externally, asking friends, asking family, looking at what other people are doing uh, to find sense or reasoning in what we're doing, but rather than, uh, but in fact, turning inwards to find those answers. We have got so much wisdom, um, and I see this with my Reiki energy healing clients every single week. We have got so much wisdom and information in our bodies that we actually forget. <laughs> so we talk about how to tune into this wisdom and using this wisdom in our bodies to create what's right for us. And then we talk about how to raise our vibration, how to expand our container of energy so that we have, we're ready and we've got strong foundations to receive and to receive the energy because everything is energy and we need to have strong energetic foundations to be able to call in big things and we, the more we expand our roots, the more we expand our container to bring things into our physical awareness or our physical environment and we talk about practices and tools like mantra and journaling and other self-care and self-love rituals that yes they feel nice and they might feel good at the time but what we're doing on a deeper level is actually enhancing the connection between our body and our energetic body which is essentially our intuition and using that in a way to remind us of who we are at the core and expressing ourselves authentically so I will be having that online course. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later this year and moving early into January, but at the moment it's in the works. So if you're not in Auckland and you're wanting to learn more about this, uh, it will be available as an online course early next year, which I couldn't be more excited about. Um, a few other updates. I recently announced on my stories that... I have got a new offering that I'll be launching in January, which is combining this information uh, into a group mentoring program. So I'll be launching my very first group mentoring program on January, well, we'll be starting, sorry, January 20th. I'll be launching it early January. Um, And what this will be is a weekly one-on-one coaching but also in a group sense coaching program which combines all the different modalities of what I teach which is energetic work, mindset work, tapping into who we really are, overcoming limiting beliefs and a whole lot more and I don't want to share too much about that yet but I've been working with my own business coach over the last while to really formulate a really clear and exciting syllabus for the course. And oh, I'm so excited for this. Um, Other than that, only other update is that my Reiki healings are booking up quite quickly for the rest of this year. Um, My energetic, sorry, my energy healing sessions are... 60 or 90 minutes long and I only do six to eight sessions a week um we've got what is it November it's November now so we've got 
I think we've got six or seven weeks left of the year and they are pretty, I'd say they're 70% full. So if you're thinking of booking in for a session this side of Christmas, do get in soon. Um, I know this time of the year is is just hectic and we actually need healings now more than ever to keep us sane but I hope you're all taking extra good care of yourself uh the energy always seems to amplify tenfold at this time of the year as we try and get all those things done as the year draws to a close but I know 2020 is going to be a really big year for a lot of you so uh other than that that's all the updates from my end I hope you guys love today's episode. I chat with Amy Fraser, founder of OK Real. Amy and I connected a few years back when she uh, had her business based in New York and I headed over to New York and we chatted a wee bit, but she now lives back in Auckland. So I got to get her to come and see me and we sat down and chatted and the conversation ended up going a little bit over the time allowed because there was so much good information coming through and I I just wanted to keep asking her questions so make sure you listen right to the end because there is so many truth bombs she shares so much insightful wisdom and I while I was editing it I was writing down all the quotes uh, that she shared she's a very eloquent speaker she you can see that it's what she does in her work and it's for a good reason she's a very well rehearsed public speaker and she is actually an interviewer herself but she she's going to be really inspiring if you are thinking about starting a business or you even have your own business she's uh, shared a lot of wisdom that I found found very useful for my own business but not only that she's a mother as well and she shares some very down-to-earth and vulnerable uh, lessons she's learned from navigating motherhood from navigating business and the realities of it all um and she's just all around a really awesome chick. So check her out. Her uh, platform on Instagram is okreal. Sorry, hey okreal. And her website is okreal.co. But I'm just going to get into today's conversation. I hope you guys love it. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast if you loved it. Comment me or message me on Instagram. My platform is at lovebyolivia underscore. And as always, I'm so grateful to our sponsor, Eve Health. Today's episode is brought to you by Eve Health at Home Hormone Testing. How it works is you purchase your test online at www.evehealth.com. They'll send you a box and you'll collect a urine sample from the comfort of your own home. You then send your sample to a New Zealand-based lab where Eve scientists will analyze your results and a health consultant will put together a report complete with diet, lifestyle and nutritional recommendations based on your own unique body. Listeners to the Modern Intuition podcast can access an exclusive 15% discount off the Eve test. When you head to their website www.evehealth.com enter the code intuition at the checkout to get 15% off. I absolutely love what Eve Health are doing as I am a firm believer that wisdom and knowledge about our own body is power and so empowering 
going when we know what's going on and we have the ability and the tools to be able to either fix it or enhance its performance and really support it and give it what it's what it really needs. I love working with Eve and think they're so aligned because there's nothing more exciting than helping women reach their optimum health and optimum performance and feel really good about their body and in tune with how it is supposed to work naturally. So without further ado, I will get into today's episode. Okay, well welcome Amy. Thanks Olivia, thanks for having me. City, a few in Auckland, we're now starting, I guess, this online pillar where people can access our re- or the resource of OK Real from their computers. So selling online courses that speak to all of the themes that we uh, that kind of form the ethos of the brand. So resilience or leadership, and um, the first is how to create community through mentorship. Nike, uh, and everything I wrote down on that list has come true, from the partners 
that I wrote down who I wanted to work with to what the site is or what the brand is today. And so when you reached out, we were probably just in the throes of getting our programming uh, established. So originally I would just speak to women, host their interviews online, slowly that turned into physical events where we would host panels and that type of thing is super popular now. At the time, I don't think brands were seeing offline activations as a, as a common form of marketing. I think we just popped up at a good time and we had a really down-to-earth voice and I think that's the, the kiwi coming through um, in a New York or in a, a kind of an American climate where that really resonated with people, just that kind of real uh, no-bullshit tone and so we started doing events we would do panels and interactive interviews and um, from there developed our mentorship program which I can tell you more about definitely I really want to go into that more soon and how you started because a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are either in the throes of starting something or want to start something um, and I want to ask you how you started too but firstly I just want to take it all the way back and want to hear a bit around what you were like as a child Wow, okay, this is like therapy. Uh, what I was like as a child, I was very independent. My mum always said that I would look into people's eyes and uh, like I knew them. Um, so I had, I had a, yeah, I guess, I guess that was, yeah, that was kind of a phrase thrown around a lot. Um, so I had a, I had a, probably an earnest uh, intensity which maybe still exists somewhat today it's been um, rubbed off around the edges for sure as life has thrown me around a bit but um, but yeah I'd say very independent, always talking uh, very extroverted I loved to read I insisted that my mother teach me how to write at the age of kind of three and a half and I've got diaries from kind of three and a half to four uh, so always very much into writing, um, very performative. I've literally just translated who I was at that age into a career. And I think that as a woman, you know, we, to me anyway, growing up has really been about becoming more of who I am and getting back to, getting back to that little girl. And I think that's so, that's such a great question because as a child, who you were holds so many cues for who you should turn out to be and what a meaningful life is going to look like for you. And so for me, that was always being around my people, very family-oriented, always talking, always performing, always connecting with people, and that being the cornerstone of everything that I did um, and really wanting to be loved and to love and being very kind of um, affectionate and effusive and sensitive and also strong and really independent. So I hope I hold all of those things now. I try and I try to. Definitely, I love that. I think that that's such a powerful tool is to look back at who we were when we were our most earnest and what qualities we held then. Mm-hmm. And that is a really true example, uh, like blueprint of who we are in essence and at the core and we can come back to if we do fall out. Absolutely. So what were you like in your early 20s? In my early 20s, I was um, probably quite angsty and um, navel-gazy and, you know, very much wanting to kind of find myself and probably far too dramatic. Uh, I always worked hard. I always had a... um, 
always had a strong work ethic, but I also always wanted more and I've never been one to be complacent. So in my early 20s, I was working at Ogilvy um, in Auckland. I studied communications. I, that was my first job out of uni. And I was there for a year working in advertising on the account side. And I just thought, this is not something I want to do. And way back in the day when I did communications, I could either choose to go into PR or advertising. And those were kind of my only two options presented to me in New Zealand or, you know, in Auckland. Uh, So I did advertising. I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan. I really enjoyed the branding side of things. And so I left the country. I left the country, I moved to Toronto and lived there for six months, following which I moved to New York and I moved there when I was 22 or 23. That's incredible, wow. So you really got a little bit, you, you got kind of outgrew what was in Auckland for you quite quickly. Mm-hmm. What was your choice, what was behind the decision to move to the States? So my mum spent time, my, mom, my mother's side of the family spent time in Canada uh, when she was growing up. So she grew up, she was born here, some of her brothers and sisters were born here, some were born in Canada, but they grew up in Canada. And they grew up in this tiny little town, Windsor, Ontario. And I was always drawn to New York City, uh, and I don't even know why, I can't remember a particular movie or a book or any kind of specific representation that I had of it, but I just, the culture of it and the people and the drive and the ambition really appealed to me and the opportunity. And so I really wanted to be there. Visas were a nightmare. And I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to go to Toronto. It's, you know, it's kind of, we have, we we didn't, I didn't know anybody there. Um, But I thought, oh, you know, there's Canadian roots in my family. So I'll go to, I'll go to Canada. So I went to Canada. Yeah. Yeah. And I got picked up by my mother's old next-door neighbour from when she was seven, her mother, who was almost deaf, partially blind and could hardly drive, and who I'd never met before, and that was the only person who I knew. And so I showed up with a suitcase and my guitar, like a total emo, um, creative, trying to yeah, find herself in the big city, and, um, and went from there. Is what we need at that age to really give us our our shell. Absolutely, absolutely. So, do you think that that decision there was any sort of intuitive nudge that went, "This is where I need to be right now"? That's all it was. That's all it was. You you don't have anything. I mean, I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't know what I had to gain either. So I wasn't going over for a job. I wasn't going over for a boy. I wasn't going over for a family member. I just, I was going over for myself. And I didn't know what that meant at the time. But I knew it was something I needed to do. And I think that something that's talked about themes earlier and something that's been a recurring theme in my life and my career is not being able to see the end but taking a step in the direction that feels right and knowing that that will somehow lead you to where you are meant to be and so that was the first step I think I'd taken in my life other than you know choosing which university to go to that felt right even though I don't know I think some people might say well it's risky you could show up but at 22 what are you I I remember saving up to buy my plane ticket. I remember uh, being really excited and I loved that I was doing it on my own. Mm. 
there's something so rewarding about doing things on your own at least that's how I've always felt and so it was all intuition I had nothing else to go on So I moved to New York because I met a boy and I, at the time, was, you know, 20, like I said, 22, 23, and I was very caught up looking back in that life and I think what I wanted at the time was very different to what I want and what I need now, but I moved and whether or not the reason I moved, you know, for somebody else, I still was moving for myself. And I knew that at least the environment that I was in would be really, really good for me. And I was excited and I was young and it was a great decision, irrespective of everything that happened later, because it helped me build the life that I have now. And so I moved over and I I mean, even before I met that person, I, you know, stepped into that city and just was... New York City was my first true love. And it has remained that. And I think what I'm really grateful for now is that, you know, after living there for almost a decade, I was able to carve out a life for myself, independent of anybody else. And it never... New York City will never betray you. So that's something that I have always hung on to, and it's very reciprocal in its nature. It's hard on you, but it will never... It's always there. So that transition, I mean, I was having the time of my life. I I was having fun. I was pushing myself. I was in a completely new environment, and I was really grateful. I miss my family. It was hard. It was hard, but... I also felt like it was where I should be at the time. And did you land a job in New York? Yeah, so I actually, when I lived in Canada, I worked like three jobs to pay rent, um, from retail to working in a bar to working in a restaurant. I arrived in New York, I had to pay for my visa, and so I couldn't work for a year over the table as such. So I worked as a nanny, and I started a jewellery company, um... So I made I made jewelry. We ended up in Vogue and like all of these like nylon, you know. And at the time, yeah. So I I made a website in Dreamweaver, which is I, I wouldn't even know how to do that now. And I taught myself how to code. And I um, yeah, I launched this brand. And I so I was running this jewelry company and working as a nanny and. Uh, I don't remember if there was anything else I did, but the day I got my visa, I uh, got a job. So I started interviewing, uh, and in like preemptively yeah. to my to getting my green card. I think I got my got the job that I wanted, kind of the day that my green card arrived. It was a very, and that was in a branding agency called Rowan Co Studio. Branding. Mm. So I was a project manager of a branding agency. Isn't that interesting that that year that you weren't allowed to work would have been such a Started a business, and then you, you couldn't work, and you made a way to figure out uh, how to get me coming a different way without being put 
occur to me that um, it wasn't an option. It wasn't an option. So I was there, and I I had something to pay for, and so I found a way to pay for it, or I, I made a way to pay for it. Yeah. Created a way. You made a way. Were you ever afraid of it not working? Always. I still am, every day. Do you I think overcoming that fear is uh, a muscle? I think it's not so much overcoming it. I think it's learning to live with it. And I think it's building yourself up in a multitude of ways so that you can live with it and that you don't let it drive you. Um, and that fear, it never, it never goes away. It just evolves. And if you're somebody like me, I have, you know, I, I might be sitting here now sounding like I'm very noble and, oh, I just live with my fear and it's fine. I have terrible anxiety and I have to work really hard to keep a handle on that and that's also a product of something that happened to me a few years ago that has amplified that anxiety and um, that's a product of trauma and so it's something that's very present in my life and I think becoming a mother, trying to wrangle a business from the other side of the world so it's not something that I've ever overcome. It's just something that I try and deal with. Mm. And there's not a lot of glamour to it. I just try and deal with it. <laughs> but you don't make turn from it, which is, no. which is very clear in your story so far. We haven't even got to like the, the part where you're actually doing what you're doing now, but it's very clear already that you do not let fear get in the way of what you want. Mm-mm. And you feel it and you don't write it. Yeah, I'm still the boss. Yes. At the end of the day. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so you landed a job in a branding agency in New York. Mm-hmm. And then, so how did things evolve from there? I worked there for a year, and it was the best learning experience I think I've ever had in terms of, you know, other than starting my own business. It was the best foundational job that I could have asked for in terms of what I wanted to do eventually, which I didn't even know at that time. I had a really strong female boss and I'd actually never noticed it at the time but I also had a really strong female boss two of them actually at Ogilvy in Auckland my mum's been a really pivotal strong figure in my life so this theme of strong women has been present and it wasn't something I noticed until I started my own business so I worked in this branding agency for about a year a year and a half was it two years maybe a year and a half and because it was small, and but we, the, the team kind of grew to double its size. I ended up having an assistant by the time they left. It was, it was a really, really great learning experience in terms of what, how creative business works in New York City, seeing both the creative side and the business side. And because the agency was small, I was able to get my hands really dirty with everything. And it was high pressure and long, long, long hours and a really great way to kind of cut me into shape for what the work environment is like over there and what you actually need, the the type of person you need to be to survive in New York City when you don't have your parents' money to rely on or you don't have a silver spoon and you really... You know, just surviving in New York City is one thing. Doing well in New York City is a whole other thing. So it helped me learn how to survive. So later on, like eight years down the track, I started doing well. 
for myself. So I was there for yeah, a year and a half, and my work was very involved in the business side of things and the operations management. And I really missed the creative side of myself, which was I've always been a writer and I've always um, had this strong sense of creativity that I wasn't able to exercise in that role. Absolutely. And it helped, you know, I remember sitting there looking at Excel sheets and, you know, doing kind of business reports and and anything that is hard for your brain to do is probably good for it. So that was a yeah, great experience, but I ended up um, I ended up working as an artist after that, so I swung the other way. And really creating that creativity. Yeah, exactly. And so I decided to become an artist. <laughs> Uh, again, so I did screen printing, and not so much. I wasn't, you know, like shut up in a studio doing like watercolors. It was, it was quite. I wouldn't say commercial, but it was very bright. Um, I had a really beautiful website built. It's like a, a thing of mine that I love to do. And so I worked. I went from working full time at the branding agency agency to doing art on the side, which turned into me leaving that job working as an artist, doing a lot of paid work. I worked with friends like Converse. Uh, I, this the funniest thing I remembered the other day when I was thinking about art, because I actually really miss painting. I did a cover for Fergie, like an album that she did oh ages ago. And they never, they never ended up using it. They employed like three of us to do these covers and then just used a photo of her. But I did all these really bizarre projects that, you know, you only have access to if you live somewhere like that. Yeah. And... Uh, so I did that for a while, and I, at one point, was working as a paid artist. I was flown to Miami to do installations at a hotel and uh, lived a very just interesting life for a while. And I would do freelance project management on the side. So working specifically, I, I started really honing in on website builds, so but the branding side of things and working with developers and um, <coughs> design teams to build websites. So I was kind of in this in-between space of doing art and then also doing the business side of things with website builds and branding for a while. So interesting. Okay, and so what came next? So I wanted to, again, not I, I still wanted to, um, I still wasn't satisfied. So, and I, and I knew that I was very aware of the fact that if I wanted to set myself up, that I needed to act around that point, which was maybe 26-ish. And I knew that if I wanted to really... I I couldn't be in this kind of limbo state of being a freelancing creative. I wanted to do something definite. And I knew that I wanted to run my own business. So I started thinking about all the questions that I had and looking around me at these people who I was surrounded with. And I never made a really deliberate choice to make OK Real About Women, but it was always just, well, write about what you know. And so I started putting together this idea for, like I said, I'd had this kind of lingering list in my iPhone of what do I, you know, what do I want to do? And so I wrote these two lists. It was like, what am I good at and what do I enjoy? And that, and then there was a third one that came later, which was what's missing. Mm-hmm. But those two, those two lists at the beginning, 
that's how I started my business. So what am I good at? What do I enjoy? And then I created something out of those two lists and I kept reading them and writing them and reading them and writing them. And these things were not by any means special. What am I, what do I enjoy? Talking people. It's the things that you take for granted about yourself that again, hold the biggest clues. So I wrote these lists. I started formulating this idea and I had a website built around something that I didn't quite know what it was at that stage, but I knew that it would have interviews with women and I and I was at such it was at this point where I was really interested in figuring my life out. And I, I'm still at that point, but it's a little different now. But I really was interested in this idea. Yeah. Break it down, you yeah. put the shells down to like get rid of it. It's never ending process, but mm. clearer and clearer. Mm. As we go, and I think it also is really important to note at this stage that you almost had to go through all of those different trajectories in order to get clearer on what it was that you wanted to do after trying all out, but also getting all the skills you needed to get you to that point. Oh, yeah. Because I think there's a lot of pressure these days around young people who get straight out of uni and there's expectations, kind of, there's this entrepreneurial, um, figure out what you're good at and make a business out of it. Sometimes we actually need to go down the road, going into work environments or even corporate environments to learn, for example, for you, like that business, those Excel Mm -hmm. spreadsheets and those skills that Mm -hmm. have all played into making a successful business work. Because you need both the creative mind and the numbers mind. Yeah, I think that's on the, that's, you nailed it. I think that I, there's no way I could have built a business from scratch straight out of university and, you know, just decided I wanted VC funding and went and built this company with, you know, a million dollar seed round or whatever people do these days. It just, that was not something I could have... I, um, and I remember even being, you know, a year or two in the business saying, oh, I wish I was doing partnerships with, like, these big brands. But I wouldn't have been ready for it at the time. And I'm a firm believer that you get given things when you are ready for them. And so now when things don't work out, I don't care. I mean, I, you know, I think, well, how can we improve and how can we be better? But And I'll always work I'll do the best that I can to, for the best result at the time, but if things don't work out, there's usually a reason for it. Sometimes you don't know until a year or three years later. Yeah, and the things that I wanted when I was 27 and I just started this business, there's no way I could have handled you know, a $20,000 partnership. I wouldn't have been able to deliver, and it would have been it would have been terrible, you know, I would have let people down. We wouldn't have had the community or, so there are things that I thought that I wanted that I definitely wasn't ready for. Mm. So, but to your point, yes, there's all, everything that I'd done up until that point had given me an arsenal of tools that I needed in order to do what I did. But along the way, you listened to what your intuition was leading you into at that point. Yeah. And again, I think that, Intuition almost becomes not harder to listen to, but it's harder to hear when you are fearful. And so there was a lot more fear, you know, me moving to New York City and that, I mean, maybe I'm just looking back now retroactively thinking or retrospectively thinking, 
I wasn't scared. I think I was, but again, there wasn't as much to lose. And so with this business, I was putting a lot of money that I'd saved into it. I was putting a lot of time uh, and I was really putting myself out there. So there was more to lose in that respect, but I still know it was worth it at the time. And that's, that was a product of intuition. So from where you were when you were writing your lists of what you're good at, what you want to do, mm-hmm. and what's missing, mm-hmm. how did you, so then you created your website, mm-hmm. and then what next? So I started interviewing women, and I kept kind of redefining the mission, and originally it was, you know, okay, real is here to help you, it's a resource for you to help, for help, okay, real was a resource to help you figure your life out, and so... I spoke to women about how they had done that for themselves. And so I would interview one woman who would say, oh, you've got to interview this um, woman. She's incredible. And and I had access to a lot of powerful women being in the creative industries. I'd been in New York for a few years, so I had not clout by any means, but I just think in under, uh, you, you develop connections um, just by being there and working in that kind of working in that creative environment. So I was able to be connected with really incredible women. I kept interviewing them. And then in 2015, and it was still just a website at this point, but I was putting a lot of time into uh, the interviews and really creating this world of OK Real through the voices of the women I featured. And I was still, I knew that I was very young and... I was hesitant to put myself at the forefront and I could see a lot of bloggers and that it was that kind of rise. It was like 2014, 2015 and this whole like influencer thing was just starting and I really didn't feel comfortable at that point making myself the face of the brand and I wanted to be really careful with how I positioned it because I did want it to be a, a lucrative business or a profitable business and so I just tinkered away and slowly built up this uh, reservoir of wisdom from these women. And I think it was in 2015 that we had our first event, and that was with a company called Everlane. And they were very progressive for their time as a clothing brand, and they were all about radical transparency. And I think they reached out to me saying that they'd seen the website and they were really interested in doing, you know, they, I think they were like, do you know, have you ever thought about doing a panel? Or, um, I can't remember if I suggested it. I'd actually be interested to go look back at those original emails and see how that conversation unfolded. But uh, we had a panel at their studio in Soho and it was packed and there were like 200 people there. And I mean, now it's so much more difficult to get 200 people in a room in New York, even though the brand has grown, but it was just such a novel thing. And, uh... So you were at the pinnacle of that, like, paving kind of that way of collaborations in that sense? I think that, you know, I'd never say that, oh, we started it. I think that it was def- it definitely existed, but it definitely existed. We didn't, we, we didn't pioneer anything in that respect, but I think there was something... There was something fresh about the way that we did panels or this. I hadn't been to anything like the panel we hosted at Everlane at that time, you know, in 2015. And I'm sure they were happening and maybe I just wasn't in that world and maybe that naivete was 
lended itself well to walking into a programming situation like that where maybe I didn't know what else was out there but I thought well if there's something out there like this then I probably would know about it and I think there were things starting to pop up but I just had the best time and I think that also was the start of me learning how to interview people in front of an audience and so I was very much learning on the spot and and it grew from there and that's how we started doing partnerships Mm -hmm. and were you time from that point onwards? No, so I you know, I don't actually remember the point in time where I said I'm going to go full time with this. Mm. I think people think I think there's a conception or a misconception that you start your business and then you you decide one day that that's, that's the last you know, job that you take or I don't remember there being a moment like that. I no, at that time I was still, I mean, that wasn't a paid job. That was for, that wasn't paid. So I was still working for a good few years alongside building the business. And what I started to do was we would get the odd partnership. So I think we did one with Urban Outfitters. Uh, we... We're doing these kind of one-off partnerships, and in the meantime, though, I would st- I would host interviews with women in the city who were a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of women who had good stories to tell, and I would do these independently of brand partnerships. So I would put on the events, I would cover costs by charging for tickets. Mm-hmm. So I do ticket sales, and then I would you know pay for the space. Um, try and get in-kind sponsorship for food and beverage and print worksheets or do that kind of thing and I would be the one organising it then ticking people off the door pouring people's wine then running up the front hosting it packing it up doing everything I couldn't afford to pay anybody and so I would do everything and that really honed my skills on what it takes to create a good like a, a good event and also how to host an event and that was again so valuable being the one who had to who had to do everything from the print production to the design to the hosting to the organization to the to all of it and then what I would do is send out a survey after each event saying how could I be better how could this have been a better experience for you so it was brutal and that was the hardest part for me those first events that you were kind of creating weren't It is. It really is. And you're, yeah, you're totally right. That's exactly what we were doing. 
We were just saying, hi, this is what we do, this is who we work with, and this is what we talk about. Mm. It was almost, yeah, like a brand exercise. Mm. PR, it's almost like, yeah. yes, they're paying to come and see you. It's a lot of really expensive PR, yeah, <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, doing those doing the hard yards and being really in the trenches of producing and running those panels and interviews on my own the brand partnerships started to build and so that was our revenue model so instead of charging people for tickets we started working with brands who would pay okay real to bring an audience who overlapped with their demo or their market, and we would curate that event, whether it be a series or a single panel. By that I mean the language around it, how are we promoting this, uh, how are we positioning this, how is this in line with your campaign themes, who are the women that we want to repre- you know, who are the women that we want to pull in to represent your brand, and really putting together this event that was a marketing activity for them by saying this is what we believe in these are our values this is who these are the type of women who represent our brand and come to our store and see our product as a byproduct of that so that is what we started doing we would start we started working with brands who had a similar mission to us which was slowly turning into building women up and giving women voices and making space for women to feel heard and celebrated and this showcasing of modern role models and so that grew and grew and the caliber of our partners grew and grew we have a really fantastic have had a fantastic series with a brand called Lewin Grey which is a clothing company over there and those events have while the brand may not be as well known worldwide as like a a Nike or an Adidas for example both of whom we've worked with that's probably been the most successful partnership in the way that we brought on the most incredible women uh, Cleo Wade, Elaine Welteroth, Benny Feldstein recently among so many others and there's lines around the block and the, the rooms are packed and that kind of consistency really proved to us and our audience that we were able to bring a certain type of event again and again over and they knew what they were getting. So that partnership really was foundational to all of our others. And uh, as you said, word of mouth is the best form of, you know... um, spreading the word about who you are as a business and so we've now worked with a slew of incredible brands Um, and in terms of how the business has evolved since then the mental circles that we started running all this mental circle program that came about from seeing the women in the audiences of our panels start to collaborate and start to forge business partnerships and friendships and I remember looking at them thinking this is really valuable and you get a group of women in a room who have shared values are driven 
and want the same things for themselves and each other and magic happens and so mentorship circles were a way to create a more intimate event a more intimate event setting where we could foster the connections that were already happening and harness that energy that was already being cultivated within the OK Real audience and community. So I went to Washington Square Park, I sat down with a notebook, and after reading so many mentorship books and speaking to friends of mine who'd run small workshops and uh, just decided to start or kind of developed a, a formula which seems very simplistic in nature now in the way it's set up, but it was seven women. I wrote an application form that they had to apply to. I charged and per session and got a group of women in a room and created this structure where women could talk with one another, feel seen, or brought together regardless of industry or age, and I, I handpicked the woman. So... Uh, to be in rooms or to be surrounded by women who they were going to be able to benefit from personally and professionally. And it was really this conversation-based session of kind of a mix between group therapy, a motivational podcast, a phone call with your best friend and career coaching. And it was this really nice... Hard to explain, but the difference between speaking with a good friend and somebody who was a colleague, it was that space in between. And they took off, and so we did those every single weekend, sometimes twice a week, for years, and in addition to the events that we were hosting. So, I mean, at that point, I was definitely full-time. I was working, you know, 40-hour days, and um, with a small but mighty team, and and yeah, we, they, we couldn't keep up the demand. It was um, we got thousands of, of applications, and I didn't want to compromise the integrity of the circles. So I actually reduced them in size from seven to five, and it was impossible to scale without compromising the results. Right, of course, and I think that that's a thing that actually is, I wanted to speak to this before when you were saying about aligning with brands and that the caliber of the brands kept evolving and expanding mm-hmm. but I think there would have been a really uh, conscious decision that you would have had to make around the alignment of each brand you did actually work with and you were compromising the integrity, right? Did you have to kind of turn down any brands to work with? We were offered a um, contract with a very prolific uh, nicotine tobacco company sorry, not a nicotine company a tobacco company um, recently actually which I and it's not that I have a thing against smokers per se but I didn't think that was a positive message to send young women uh, so I said no and there have been there's been a few other instances where I have had to say no for political reasons mm-hmm. uh, somebody, you know, a woman closely involved with Trump, for example, um, and again, saying no to money when I'm trying to pay rent mm-hmm. is is not an easy thing to do, but it's an important thing to do. And so, yeah, absolutely, there has been a lot that people don't see. Of course. I think it's very clear, though, when you, tell, when you speak about your journey, that you have only chosen brands that will continue to align and expand your brand. 
which I think is really important because not only your customers and your audience will see how authentic you are, but your your brand presence will build loyalty and trust. And I think that that's very important when you are growing and you're aligning with bigger and bigger companies. It gets kind of a little bit more muddled, I think, when you get when you become a lot bigger and you're looking at bigger partnerships. It's easy when you're in the early days when you can see very clearly, yes, you are the right person, no, you're not the right person, but I'm sure there have been some very hard decisions along the way when growing audience and when money is involved too and being offered um, a hefty paycheck or Mm -hmm. an opportunity. Um, Yeah, there's definitely an increased sense of social responsibility. Mm -hmm. And as you get bigger, people will call you out. Mm -hmm. If you have lacked in diversity for your panels, for example, that's something I'm always really conscious of. I think a multitude or a variety of perspectives and backgrounds is so crucial for representation. And as a white woman, I have... I have a responsibility. And so I think that's been something also working in the environment of New York City where you... That is... That's a, you know, that's really important and to recognize your privilege and to not only say, oh, I'm recognizing my privilege, but actually acting mm-hmm. on that. And so that's something that's, that's, you know, always front of mind and that's something that I've had to be conscious of and it's been, I think, yeah, it's been humbling. Mm-hmm. So when, you, when you get to that point where your business does become kind of in the eye of a lot more something really needs to happen for me to, and this was more so in the early days when we were still transitioning from a blog, essentially, a glamorized blog to a profitable business. And I really struggled with turning, with kind of translating our uh, our ROI to potential clients, Mm -hmm. saying, uh, you're selling quite a nebulous intangible thing which is brand awareness and I struggled as a really fresh businesswoman who had a product that not everybody understood which was brand association and literally people walking into a room and feeling really good and then associating that with the brand and me trying to say well I can do that for you in a way that made sense to people and I still struggle with that so I think the biggest challenge has been monetizing the business at the beginning well first it was getting the business off the ground and actually putting a website out there that I didn't know really what what I was doing or what it was what it was for the second part was monetizing it and uh and now the third part of it is maintaining profitability so continuing to level up and then also we've taken this pivot or we've added a new 
pillar to the business, which is uh, online courses. Mm-hmm. And so that is also very, you know, a whole new thing that I'm navigating. So I think constantly, constantly having to be on top of your game and constantly having to look at what's next and I think that's that's just part of running any business that's not specific to me or what I do I think it's just the nature of the game and just deciding that if you want to do great things and live a great life you constantly have to make difficult decisions and so I'm always reminding myself well this is your choice this is your choice and so being accountable for the fact that I am choosing this and that it's all part of it's all it's all part of it so I figure I might as well like life is really hard and you might as well be doing something that you believe in so yeah I think I think just just keeping it keeping it going and having to move and try and run the business from a different part of the world has obviously been major yeah yeah it does you're right. This is something I've experienced with my own business is not only being able to articulate ideas in a way where it makes sense. Sometimes it's quite hard having the concept just up in the ideas ever and then translating it into a way that has structure and delivering it in a way that's relevant mm. and appealing and has a market and an audience and also you can create uh, revenue from. Mm. <laughs> that process Yeah. But, and once it's out, beautiful, it's out there and, and it's evolving and people are seeing it and growing. But then that process never stops because that, like you said, that kind of constant remaining relevant, innovating, pulling ideas through. And when you're one of those people that are constantly having to create, the ideas never stop. Mm. And you need to stop growing as people. And we want to stay excited about what we're creating. So as we're evolving, our business is evolving at the same time. And then it's the hustle. Yeah. <laughs> I interviewed Rebecca Minkoff, who's a clothing shoe and handbag designer and a few years ago, and she was saying, you know, you kind of, at the beginning, you think, oh, well, one day I'll get to the point and I can go on the cruise ship and I can put my phone away and the business will be running. And she was like, there is no cruise ship. It does not stop. It does not stop. And I think getting used to that idea, you have times to breathe in between, but not really. Not really. I got back from New York two days ago and I need to book my next flight this week. So it doesn't stop. But like you said, life is short, life is tough. Mm. And we may as well be doing the stuff we love and thrive off. Yeah. And we're not because life is too short for that. So just to navigate somewhere else, throughout the running of your business and you and you've made it sound challenging but also seamless but I know there has been challenges that have come up personally mm-hmm. along that journey and something you shared with me a wee while ago mm-hmm. do you want to speak a little bit how, to how your life in New York has changed dramatically alongside running your business to relocating back to Auckland I read on your website yeah. that you spoke to having to navigate identity change from a business owner Yeah, 
Huge. So I was living in New York with my husband at the time, and I found out at five months pregnant that he was living a double life. And so this blindsided me, naturally, and blindsided my family and a lot of our friends, and I left the country in my home within the same week of finding out. So that was a protection mechanism, and it was all, you know, when you're pregnant, you're extremely vulnerable, and there was no... Again, it didn't feel like a choice at the time. It felt like an equation. And multiple women reached out to me, and, you know, around the world, it was quite... The deceit was quite... um, Extreme and had been happening for a very, very long time. And so there's this fear of, this is a stranger. And so I left, I came back to New Zealand, and I continued to run the business through this grief and trauma. And my mum came over to New York and kind of helped me through packing. And at the time, I didn't know that I was going to leave. You know, she arrived kind of the next day. She got on the next flight. And, um, but I had, I had all of these uh, events to run. So I think I had a mental circle. I found out during a mental circle, I found, and then I, I had an event in New York that I had to Present a panel, and then I had to fly to San Francisco. I had three events in San Francisco, and I had my assistant flying out with me. You know, I had quite a solid team at that point of maybe five or so people. And I, yeah, I just got this news, and it just obliterated my entire sense of security and safety as a mother, as a woman, as a a wife. And so I decided to leave and kind of recover in New Zealand. And I'd always planned to have the baby in New Zealand. So that part hadn't changed, but I definitely went back a lot earlier than I'd planned on. So that was in September 2017. So I moved back and I... And that was kind of that. I mean, I, it was there was one confrontation, and then that was that was it. It was almost the, it was the kind of, in some ways, the cleanest breakup I've ever had. Where um, it was just there was just no no option in my mind that that could that there was any other way. And so my work and my community really saved me at that time. And so I kind of went back to New Zealand and I I moved back in with my parents and I didn't want to leave the house and I didn't... I was too scared to see anybody and I went into... I did go into this kind of trauma phase of really having to retreat. And I only do that when I'm under a lot of threat. I'm such a... You know, I'm so... very extroverted I love connecting with people and I just I couldn't for months I couldn't see anybody and I couldn't I really struggled to leave the house and I just was so desperate to um, regenerate my health for my baby I lost a lot of weight and and so I slowly 
But every day, I... Again, and it also just never occurred to me to quit my business either. Didn't feel like, oh, you know, it's great that you're continuing to... But I think when somebody takes everything away from you, you hang on to what you have power over. And so I had power over my child, and I was responsible for my child, and I also had power over my business, and that was something that I built. So something I tell people now or women who are experiencing something similar or you know when you when you have everything taken away from you what keep sight of the things that are going to give you back your power and for me that was my business and I had this community really show up for me and so many women reach out in support of me and I had or the, the clients who I was working with at the time, they didn't just drop me or, you know, I just felt really held throughout that whole situation. I think that's such a beautiful reflection of what you created for other women, though. You've spent, I don't know, how many years have you been in your business for that until that point? Maybe three. Yeah. You have spent three years creating space for other women to grow and prosper and be their best selves and be inspired, and you then needed that back from community and support it was was incredible it was incredible to see I I remember thinking oh this is why I built this community Mm. not because it was all about me but it was like this one of the a purpose that wasn't clear at the time was you know revealed to me through something really sad and awful but it was also this really beautiful thing that happened as a result of that and I was. I just felt very, uh, yeah, very carried by everybody. And you know, I had a few key friends back in Auckland who just looked after me and checked on me. And my, you know, my my family have been just incredible. And so, you know, that journey continued to me having the baby. Um, I started traveling back to the States at seven weeks postpartum. Um, and I think by nature, I, of being a single mother and, you know, financially I had to continue the business. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Were you afraid to go back to New York? I was afraid in the way that I really missed my friends and I'd miss my home of my kind of, you know, my routine of I'd go to the this place and that cafe and then I'd go to that yoga class and I'd do my work here and then I'd see my girlfriend there and then so I missed this life that I'd spent so long creating for myself and right at the point when I was able to start kind of enjoying it and that felt really, really rough. That I something was taken away from me that I'd worked really hard for. And in some ways that feeling of like, how dare somebody rip this away from me? It made me work harder and it's made me more determined. And it's the reason also why I 
have continued to go back and go back and go back and so I go back now every eight to ten weeks and it's why I've been more fiercely committed to my business is because it 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 was such a big part of me over there and and I've seen how it um it's been, you know, you, you asked about identity and it's been this real recalibration of who I am um, after everything that happened to me and it really forces you to put... When somebody... When your life is shattered, you can put it back together how you want it. And I've rebuilt a life that is better, so much better. And I see people now who are like, you look like a different person. And there's a light in my face that I never had before. And you don't realize when you're in a relationship that is, you know, a toxic relationship is really thrown around as a phrase. But when you're in a situation that becomes normalized and you you can really lose yourself if you don't, are not kind of checking in. And so now I have my poor boyfriend. <laughs> You know, I have such, such strong boundaries and that's really hard because I feel like I betrayed my intuition for so long that now I'm so keenly aware of what I believe I deserve and I've had to fight for it. It's it's hard for me to build up that sense of self-worth but also, you know, when we were rebranding the website and what OK Real is this theme of it's really about it's not so much about figuring your life out anymore it's really about how to build an indestructible sense of self-worth because that is foundational to all forms of success and fulfillment in life everything starts with self-worth and it has such a strong correlation to the power that you have and the agency that you hold and so my whole personal experience has driven this clarity around my brand and what I do and what my what my mission is. It's not what it's not what happens to you. It's not your story. It's what that story teaches you how to be and how to show up. Mm-hmm. And even though the hardest times they feel like there could be nothing, nothing worse. You sometimes do have to be completely broken down. I had to go through something last year that completely obliterated my sense of security and safety as well. And it's been such a process of putting the pieces back together. But you're right, leaving behind the parts that I had before that were not serving me in hindsight, but mm. I did not know at that time. Yeah. Hmm. Identity growth is mm. one of the most uncomfortable things, but you're right. It Show up for ourselves and for life. Mm. What do you do when you're in a rut or you're in a place of low self-worth? Say, how do you actually pull yourself back out of that place? What do you? What are your rituals or your tools? Being the mother of a toddler, I don't know what the word rituals means anymore. Um, you know, I, I read a lot about. I don't know. I, I, I think I see, read things about women who have these tongue scraping and yoga meditation, and I am not. I'm envious of that. I'm not putting them down. I just think, oh my goodness. And I probably, if I really wanted to, you know, I could get up at 3 a.m. and do that as well. But I find that my biggest 
the best form of self-care for me at the stage of life that I'm at, which is an interesting stage for a woman. I'm 32. I have a young toddler. I am in a relationship. I am running a business. And it's a, it's a tough time as a woman. And what I hear is that when they turn five, it gets easier and <laughs> you have a little bit more normalcy. But my biggest tip is to learn how to thrive in chaos. So as opposed to fighting it or forcing yourself to fit in a ritual that you read somewhere, and that works for a lot of people, but I think for other people who struggle to enforce something daily or um, I think for me it's just learning to be okay when the house is an absolute disaster my inbox is screaming and I haven't showered I think learning how to be okay in chaos is has been the biggest gift to me and it's something that I learn every day and I probably do a terrible job at it um but I think that to me is more important than um, maybe trying to force a sense of calmness or peace is actually being like, you know what, this is how it is right now. This is how it is right now, and it's going to be like this for a little bit, and just sometimes you're going to grit your teeth through it, and sometimes you're going to laugh through it, and just keeping really keeping a really good handle on what's important has been really crucial for me as well and really grounding and that's always the, my family mm. it's my partner it's my child it's my it's my friends I probably am a terrible friend lately because I you know um, have been caught up but trying to be just always trying to be a good person trying to be somebody who listens yeah I think for me self care is learning how to thrive in chaos Mm. thank you for speaking into that because I do believe that there's no right or wrong there's no self self care or self love ritual that everyone should be doing because it's different we're all different different places in our life we need different things and remembering what is important maybe our friends our family our loved ones our children uh, and coming back to what's real for us mm. is the most important thing in those times of rock bottom. Like, mm. What is it that is real for you in this moment that's going to bring you back to remembering why you're here, what, mm. what's, what's right in this moment for me that I need, what do I need in this moment? Mm. Yeah, that I think something that keeps popping up, rule has popped up recently, is is power and truth not power and control mm. and always coming back to okay what's the truth here what is what do you actually need instead of trying to control things and control an outcome focusing on that truth and not betraying that truth and not betraying what you actually need for something you think that you want or for a happy ending or for um there was a really great quote that I read recently which was about not something about how we um, betray a long term truth for temporary happiness and I think that's something I'm always trying to kind of come back to is are you being honest with yourself about what you deserve, are you being honest with yourself about what you need 
and always making decisions out of that we always have two choices. You either are choosing growth or you're choosing to shrink. Mm-hmm. What are you going to choose? And shrink is easier for... Oh, so much easier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there's no growth in the comfort zone. No. Yeah, the power of surrender and really tuning in to how we feel. But like you said, that when we feel our intuition, that is harder when we're fearful, when mm-hmm. we're fearing something. Mm-hmm. So observing fear, and if there is fear coming up, just acknowledging that it's there is, mm-hmm. is the power of surrender. Mm-hmm. And it helps to release control that fear sometimes has over us. Mm-hmm. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? I believe in being grateful. I believe in being honest. I think that those two things are... Spirituality to me is being grounded as opposed to being... I don't know, it's about, yeah, spirituality to me means being grounded. And I think those two things, honesty and gratuity or being grateful, um, help remind you of, again, what's important. And so we, you know, we say grace before we eat dinner, but we're not religious. We just say thank you, you know, we say thank you. And we thank each other. And not every night, but that's something that, that, you know, we both find ourselves doing. And so there are maybe like spiritual practices that have become part of... um, But I think, you know, I sing to my son at night. Um, and it's a blessing that my mum used to sing to us. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are things that are kind of woven into the way that I live, but I don't read the Bible per se, or, um, you know, but I think that, like, yeah, it's nice to have. I, I enjoy the elements of spirituality that I have in my life. They feel natural and they feel full of love. What does intuition feel like for you? It feels like a compass. And it feels like a voice that sometimes you want to ignore and sometimes you do and then everything doesn't work out. Sometimes it is hard to hear. I feel like what you said before about it being a muscle is true, that the more you use it, the clearer and stronger it becomes. intuition can be really scary because it's not biased towards the easiest option it's biased towards the right option for you and so often we don't want to face what the right option is because it usually I think your intuition guides you towards the best or the truest version of yourself and what you need and that is a really hard thing to achieve it's a choice every single day it's not like you hear your intuition say break up with that person go on this trip take that job say no to that person who you love desperately but you know is bad for you or you need to quit this job because you should go be a poem writer mm-hmm. you know your intuition often tells you things that you know to be true but you ignore it because it's hard so it's something to be reckoned with, and I don't think we're always friends with our intuition. <laughs> what are some of the biggest lessons you have learned around creating your own success? That you have to be willing to have 
very honest conversations with yourself about what fulfillment means to you, how you define it first, and then how you create it. And that looks different for all of us. And that's what I hope OK Real helps people do is, is, help, is to help people define what that version of fulfillment looks like and then how to create it. And I think for me, that's been being a mother. I've, you know, I've always wanted to have kids and it definitely turned out a very different way than I thought it would. Um, so knowing what, again, paying attention to your intuition and sticking by it. And it, I think for me, again, it's this theme of choice comes up and that choice is constant. It's every single day and I think there's a misconception around you make one good choice mm-hmm. you make one defining choice and then everything will you know kind of fall into place and that's not actually true you make one hard choice and that's going to lead you to a lot of other hard choices and knowing that mm-hmm. and again knowing that if you want a great life full of great things you're going to have to keep making really hard choices yeah but you don't need to take the big leap from A to Z. You just take the A to B and then just do the next Do the next best thing. Yeah. And I'm always trying to figure out what my end game is, what my end game is. And Glennon Doyle Melton has a really great saying, which is this idea of you don't need to figure out your entire life right now. You just need to figure out the next best thing. Step, yeah. Yeah. What are you currently working on? I'm currently working on developing our first online course which is I don't know when this airs but it goes on sale for real December 1st right now we are in pre-sale mode so we're editing all the modules and it's really in the videos and the worksheets and it's really a, a blueprint for how to create your own mental circle program as a way of cultivating community Thank you. But the, the beauty of it is that it's once it's created, it's out there. Mm. And all the mammoth amount of workload, you won't even remember it. Once it's out there, it will be will be worthwhile, and I'm sure it'll be successful. Thanks. Um, so just my final question for anyone out there who's in a place where they're in a little bit of a rut and they want to start something, what would be your advice for them? that thinking about things does not provide clarity doing things provides clarity and you learn so much more about where you should be headed and all of the answers that you're looking for well I don't know how it's going to turn out or should I do this or should I do this they don't actually matter they don't actually matter and by starting I think I started my website by I just started writing things And then I got this design studio involved and I was like, look, I don't know what this is supposed to look like right now, so just bear with me. And so it's okay to start something that feels really scary that you don't have the answers for. And maybe you think, oh, I really like baking and I want to create some sort of company, but I don't know what that looks like. Just make some muffins. You know, it can be really, I think think not to be scared of starting, of having really humble beginnings. 
I think now, especially with entrepreneurship or people wanting to start if they're on, it's really a glamorized um, industry, and it's not. You know, I started my business literally on a next to a pile of washing on my couch by emailing some woman being like, I have this idea, I don't really know what it is, I'd love to just talk to you. Mm-hmm. And that was pulled from the list of like, well, I, I love talking to people and I love connecting with people, so what did I do? I connected with people to talk to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds so pedestrian, but I think just knowing that it's okay to start from a really humble place. Mm-hmm. And when you let go of the expectations you have over Yeah. Just plant the seed and let the roots do their thing. Amazing, Amy. Thank you so much for sharing all your beautiful wisdom. Thanks, Olivia. You're so inspiring. I'm inspired to speaking to you, and I know everybody else will be. Thank you. Um, where can we find you? You can find me online at okreal.co, and you will find our online course page there and all of the interviews there and get a snapshot of the events that we do you can find us on instagram at hey okay real and if you want a lot of baby spam and um selfies you can find me at amy on my <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode i hope you loved it and you took away a lot of gems As always, if you loved it, please share it with a friend, subscribe, comment, leave me a review, or just message me on Instagram and let me know what you loved most about today's episode. I hope you have a beautiful rest of your week. Enjoy wherever in the world you are, and I will be back with you very soon with our next guest. Thanks for tuning in.